I'm not here to give a speech. And I'm not here, even though there's a lectern, to give a lecture. I'm here to speak in a direct and personal way to all of you and to each of you to testify to you why I am absolutely committed to a certain view and understanding of the whole universe in relation to the God of purpose and the purpose of God. I'm fully aware of the environment that surrounds me as I share this, what the view of humanity is, what the view of the universe is, but I'm not afraid to present a radically antithetical view. A few years ago, in western Massachusetts, some of the greatest philosophical and scientific brains, both from this area and from around the earth, had a gathering. And their intention was, how can we spread into the general population our understanding, our materialistic, neo-Darwinian view of the universe? But something else was going on during that conference because one of their number, a distinguished philosopher named Thomas Nagel from NYU, had just published a book entitled Why the Naturalistic Neo-Darwinian View of the Universe is Almost Certainly False. <clears throat> they felt betrayed by him. Even though Nagel remains an atheist, and he said in one of his other books, honestly, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a universe where there's a God. But he's bothered by some of the most intelligent persons he knows believe that God is. I don't say God exists. Beings, animals, plants exist. God is. When I was 19, <clears throat> due to a certain deeply traumatic experience, I came existentially to the conviction that human life is absurd and meaningless and pointless, purposeless. So I was drawn to read Kafka, Camus. I put on my, the wall of my bedroom a small print of Picasso's Guernica, the classic piece to show his anguish over the saturation bombing of that city. But at the same time, I was still a believer. And believe it or not, I was still on track to prepare to finish undergraduate, 
then to go to Princeton, New Jersey for a theological education. But then over the years, a great shift took place. After much heart-seeking, much study, much reflection, much interaction. So now, according to my understanding, and this is one older man's testimony, you might even say, old man, and that's okay, it won't bother me. <laughs> I still kind of lessen it a little by adding another syllable, but it doesn't matter. I just want to tell you why I believe in the God of purpose and in the purpose of God. And why, and I'll end with this, this year, the most strategic, drastically significant year of my whole life, I'm more committed to this than ever. No one can prove that God is. No one can disprove that God is. They can only formulate arguments to rationalize their prior convictions. The Bible does not present arguments. It presents God as I am. I am. Ever existing and self-existing. This I consider the greatest challenge to the finite human mind which is structured with space, time, and causality, the greatest challenge is to be confronted with a being that is uncaused, that is self-existing. And eventually, everyone will know God is. There are no dead atheists. As soon as an atheist departs, he will know, she will know, God is. So this God who is, ever-existing and self-existing, is a God of purpose. So I just would like to share some verses with you, because I'm indebted to the Apostle Paul, who received direct revelation from the Lord concerning the mind and purpose of God. We might as well say it as it is. So I won't hide anything. If you want to accept it, that's fine. If you want to dismiss the whole thing, at least you're clear what it is you're disagreeing with. The, Paul, when he was young wanted to murder the believers. The word murder is used regarding him. He was breathing out murder. And he participated in pronouncing the death sentence on many believers. And he was out to capture more. And when he was on a journey, the glorified Jesus, about whom we just sang, revealed himself with a light brighter than the sun, and spoke to him. He didn't present an argument. He didn't send a genius to outwit this young genius. He just said, here I am. Here I am. Now what will you do? 
I am Jesus. Then the Lord who appeared to him sent a nondescript male believer named Ananias to converse with Paul and inform Paul in part what was ahead of him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. So this becomes the bridge into a series of points, which I'll present between now and 9.05. Not too long. We'd like to give you adequate time to consider this. So Paul was told, God appointed you to know his will. God is a God who hides himself. He doesn't like to make a big display, especially in the present age. But there is one verse in the Bible that, as far as I know, is the only direct statement that tells us why everything exists. That verse is Revelation 4.11. And this is a book of symbols. And these living creatures symbolizing creation are praising God, saying, All things exist because of your will. Because of your will, they were created. God's will is what he wants. God's will is what he intends. Sooner or later, we will come to realize this. So Paul designated as having the privilege of knowing God's will and God's purpose and the God of purpose wrote certain things for us to consider. And most of the writing was while he was in chains, a prisoner waiting to be executed. So in Ephesians, this is an epistle in the New Testament, Chapter 1, verse 5, he's referring to God, making known the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. So here we see that God has a will, what he wants to do, and he is purposing in himself. That is, he has a determined intention to accomplish something. How often have you met a truly, not stubborn, but strong-willed person who has a goal, an intention, a plan, and a determined intention? You will realize there's no way you can stop her. There's no way you can interfere with him in this matter. We'll magnify this manifold. God has a will. He has a purpose, which is his determined intention with a plan to carry it out. Then in the same chapter of Ephesians, verse 11, he talks about the purpose of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So now there's a purpose. And God's counsel 
S-E-L. Is his decision on how to carry this out. Toward the very end, when I draw this together in a personal way to testify to you of what this reality is to me, I will bear witness that God has a way in detail in our lives to work out his purpose according to his will. So Paul realized this. Then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul is talking both about the creation of all things and the church, he speaks of the eternal purpose which God made in Christ Jesus. Right now, I'm not giving you the content of the purpose. That will come... And it's related to part of a song you sang several times from the last New Testament book. We'll see what that is. But Paul wants us to know there's an eternal purpose. What does that mean? It means that before space-time existed, before anything existed... The eternal, ever-existing, self-existing God formed a purpose according to his will. And this is what caused him to create all things according to his will, including us, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we want to agree with it or not, sooner or later we'll discover that it is. This eternal purpose is eternal because it originated in what we call eternity past, before time, which is related to space, was created. And its consummation will exist in what we call eternity future, in a new heaven and a new earth. It will take a new heaven and a new earth to contain the consummation of this eternal purpose. And there's a wonderful hymn that we sing. I may sing it to one melody because of my generation. You sing it to another melody because of your generation. And that's fine. It's the same content about God eternal has a purpose. And one of the lines says, in time, we're merely travelers. For eternity, we're meant. So God created the universe. He created humankind. Because he has a will with a good pleasure and a determined intention. That's the purpose. God foreknew and God realizes that there will be a situation on the earth when no one knows this and no one cares about this, period. People don't know why they exist. So they make their existence itself the meaning of their existence. However, God in eternity passed, and there's huge debates about 
theological concepts related to this. God chose millions of people before they existed, that they would be holy and that they will be what the Bible calls sons of God, which is a neutral term, including male and female. So feminists be at peace. (laughs) Anyone who's patriarchal, just step aside. This is an inclusive term, just as the wife, the bride is an inclusive term. So the fact is, there are in this room, there are in all the campuses in this area, human beings, male and female, whether they know it or not, who were chosen by God in eternity. Then in time, something happens. If it can happen to a murderer like Saul of Tarsus, it can happen to anyone. God calls these ones. He calls them. He comes to them, usually through another person who shares something of the gospel truth with them or something of Christ with them. Then the spirit applies to this person, whether you're willing or not at the start. God determined you would be here. So now he saves you. He knows none of us seek God. None of us love God. He knows the situation. But his love remains. He's undeterred in his purpose. Paul realized this. So in 2 Timothy, written shortly before He was killed. And he wrote this epistle to one of the few believers that was still one with him. It's one thing to appreciate a servant of the Lord when everything is hunky-dory. It's another thing when you are one with him at the risk of your own life. But Timothy was a spiritual child to Paul. He was deeply one with him. Paul knew he would be martyred. He knew Timothy had to continue. So Paul wrote to him in 2 Timothy. That's because there's a first epistle, so there's a second. And he said, God saved us according to his own purpose. So I just saw a young brother that was baptized just a week ago. My dear brother, I effortlessly, spontaneously love you as my brother, although I'm a 20th of a millennium older than you. (laughs) Love is love. You were saved because God has a purpose. And he wants... To bring your life into alignment with his purpose so that your life will be full of meaning and purpose. Because as you reach the end, you will be able, you'll have the realization, I did not live for nothing. My life was not absurd. It was not vain. It was not without meaning. I lived in and for the purpose for which I was created and the purpose for which I was saved. Now, let me present 
a definition of this purpose. Well, how does the Bible begin? And how does the Bible end? The Bible begins, okay, technically it's in the second chapter, with a human male who's alone, and it's not good for him to be alone. So a woman is produced for the man. I'm not getting into the interpretation, the literalness. This is how the Bible opens. With a couple getting married. And how does the Bible end? Well, you have a very elderly apostle in his 90s. But, you know, God still has a use for some of us old guys, you know, that we understand certain things and, and we may be able to receive a certain understanding that we can pass on to you so you can take it and run and surpass us in every way. So he's in exile on a rocky island called Patmos and he gets a series of revelations, unveiling of the divine reality that reached his spirit. And the last one was so glorious that an angel came and said, John, come here. I will show you something. So in spirit, not physically, he was carried away onto a high mountain and he saw something called the wife of the lamb. The wife. I want to show you the bride, the wife of the redeeming God. Then what he saw was a city, but the city is a person. And the city is the wife of the God who created us and the God who redeemed us. And we sang from Revelation 19 about let us rejoice, let us exalt. The marriage dinner of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. So God's purpose is to get married and to live happily ever after in the new heaven and the new earth with a corporate person composed of millions of created and regenerated human beings from every race, every nation, every culture that have been brought into God's purpose, fully gained by Him. Now they are absolutely one in Him and they love Him. And in Revelation 19, you have the first part of this composed of those believers who lived their life on earth with this wedding in view. They saw the purpose. On one level, they live a normal human life in every stage. And they advance in this human life according to their capacity and education and training. They're not odd. 
They're not weird. They're not peculiar. They are what we call Jesusly human. But in their being, they realize everything I'm doing, all my relationships, everything that happens to me, my advancement in my profession or trade, whatever it is, that is so I may live on the earth for God's purpose. But in my being, I'm not living for this as an end in itself. I'm living for God's purpose. Now I realize God is typified by that man in Genesis 2 who was alone, who symbolizes Christ himself, according to New Testament interpretation. And when God said it's not good for man, meaning the male to be alone, he is saying, it's not good for me to be alone. I created humankind in my image and according to my likeness in such a way that I could enter into them, saturate them, fill them, transform them into my image, make them like me in every possible way so that there is now a corporate person to match me whom I can marry. That's the purpose. And in one of the parables in Matthew 22, we have a reference to this. The Lord Jesus says the kingdom of the heavens is like a wedding feast that a father prepared for his son. So we who are pursuing the Lord, who have some understanding of his purpose, who are living this out in a practical way with others, we know what we're heading for. And you'll see at the end, I'll tell you why I breathe, why my heart, which didn't want to beat for a while, is still beating for this. God's purpose is eventually have in the new heaven and the new earth a life of supreme delight and enjoyment in a marriage on the new earth in the new heaven filled with righteousness. That's the purpose. That is the highest definition of God's purpose. So the term we use to describe the whole experience is divine romance. Divine romance. That is why when the Lord was asked what is the greatest commandment, he would say it's to love the Lord your God from your whole heart, from your whole soul, from your whole mind, from your whole strength. That is why Paul could write a church and say, I betroth you to Christ. You're engaged. I was the one who was the intermediary. The Lord is courting you. He's wooing you. Now you are engaged to him. Be faithful to him. Don't be like what happened in Genesis 3. Love him. Pursue him. Be filled with him. Because when the Lord, see, we believe, we know Harvard Divinity School. If I would tell them, I believe with my whole being the words spoken in Acts chapter 1, 
by an angel to the apostles who kept looking up into heaven, even though they couldn't see the ascending Jesus anymore. The angel said, why do you keep looking up? The same Jesus that you saw ascending into heaven will come in this way. He will return to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. This is a prophecy that will be fulfilled. And I am, in the eyes of the brilliant, foolish enough to believe God's word regarding this. Not only to believe it, but to devote my whole life to it. Now, two other matters, which is now turning to the personal realization of this. One of my favorite books in the whole Bible is one called Song of Songs. If you've never read it, you might be shocked that there's such a romantic love story with very vivid images in the Bible. But, it, but it's an indicator how God views the love between a male and a female and married life, how he intended it, how wonderful it is. But it shows us, this book, how personal is this purpose worked out in our lives. We're not in a mass movement. That's why I'm not trying to stir up anyone. I'm not trying to convince anyone. I'm just opening my being to you. But there are two verses with which I'm going to conclude in about five minutes that make this profoundly real to me personally. And I'm indebted to Paul again. The first is in Romans 8. And verse 28 is a familiar verse, often quoted, I would say, in a rather shallow way to comfort people. Paul says, we know, not hope, not believe. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things really refer to what we may call the seeming chaos of human life. All the things. And I'm obviously not young. I've experienced lots of things like the murder of someone I loved, the child of a man and woman that I knew for years. And now he was murdered in California by a repeated sex offender under early release by an ungodly governor who's governor again. I know what it is for my father who was one of 13 children whose father died when he was four whose education stopped when he was 13 who went to a trade school <clears throat> and became an excellent tool and die operator and he's working on his machine and an incompetent crane operator pressed the wrong button and the gigantic hook of a crane swung with force and crushed his head against the machine and wheeled back and hit him again my life is full of things 
little things, great things, tragic things, heartbreaking things, things that in and of themselves seem ridiculous, incompatible with God. But I know something. I know that all things work together for good because I love God. And I am called according to his purpose. So this is an update. I met a lovely young woman named Susan Harris, a student at Columbia in Princeton, New Jersey, on March 1st, 1963. By March 2nd, we both knew we would get married. It was love at second sight. And eventually we did. And on March 9th, 2016, I was there by her bedside as we were continuing hospice care. When she in peace breathed her last breath, my daughter and younger son were there. I closed her eyes then made the arrangements from there on. I saw death again at very close range. The death of the most important person in a married man's life. And widows, the experts say, and the statistics prove, they have a tendency They pass through the crisis, then they go on living. Widowers my age die within a year because they have nothing to live for. Their heart is lost. So the first part of the struggle, because I'm a believer, I have Christ in me, but I'm a human. I'm a human. Was to win the battle for life. I will not give in to death. My journey's not finished. My ministry's not fulfilled. I will go on until my part is done and my contribution is completed. So that was a thing, a big thing. But God is causing it to work together for good because in this thing, I love him. I don't question him. I don't argue with him. I have no issue with him. I vindicate him. But then, sometime later, something happened. I'm not in California. I'm in Russia. I'm in a suburb of Russia called Ramanskaya. And on a Saturday night, I have a five-minute conversation with a lovely woman born in Kazakhstan. And the fire of the love in the divine romance was ignited again. And a verse from Song of Songs came up in me, Song of Songs 8.6. Love is as strong as death. Well, there are all kinds of things They're not all bad things. They're not all losses. They're precious things. 
But I stand here to bear witness to you that in fact, for those who love God, who know they're called by God according to his purpose, and who live and breathe for God's purpose as they go through this experiences of human life, all things, all things work together for good. In 2 Timothy, where Paul talked about we're saved according to God's own purpose, he said one last thing to Timothy. He said, so many have forsaken me, but you have closely followed my purpose. My purpose, the same Greek word is used. But he had just written about God's own purpose. Now he says, my purpose. What does this mean? What does this indicate? It means that God's purpose was not an abstraction to Paul. It was not a thing out there. It became his purpose. And Timothy saw God's purpose embodied, expressed, lived out at great cost in his spiritual father. And he closely followed this embodiment and expression of God's purpose. So my final word is, to the glory of God, in thankfulness for his mercy and grace, the God of purpose is my God. And the purpose of God is my purpose. And in love for you all, the longing in my heart is that whatever needs to happen in your life would happen so that one day you can say, God's purpose is my purpose. And for this purpose, he's working everything together for good. And I don't only believe in him and trust in him. I love the God of purpose and I live and breathe for the purpose of God. Okay. That's my contribution to you. May the Lord bless you all.